Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We're in uh, a study in Ephesians, and if you haven't been here, this is something like the 13th week or something like that. And so you can go online and you can listen to all of the previous messages to catch up. And if you do, we'd love for you just to like, like it or comment on it on our podcast or whatever. Um, but you can catch up on all of that stuff. The, the, the Coles Notes basic summary of this book called Ephesians that the Apostle Paul wrote, it's in the New Testament, is that we live in um, a spiritual world that the spiritual and the natural are not antithetical to each other, they don't oppose each other, um, and they also aren't isolated from each other, that there is a spiritual realm and a physical world, and the two are interlaced together. You can't separate them. We tried in the Enlightenment, and we've been trying ever since, but the harder we try, the more we realize we can't. Did you know that as science... Uh, By the way, science and the Bible aren't fighting together. As science grows, more and more of the top, top, top tier scientists in the world are giving their life to Christ because the more we understand, the more we realize we don't. And the more we realize that the complexity of one cell that can't be manufactured is well beyond anything we could ever imagine. One cell, we can't reproduce one. And these scientists that are devoting their life to these, um, these research studies and the, the discovery of where life came from and all of this stuff, even evolution is increasingly, Darwinian evolution is really on the outs in the scientific community because they're realizing, hey, in the last 150 years or whatever it is since Darwin, we've learned so much and we've realized that a lot of his hypothesis were faulty, extremely faulty. And the more and more we realize and learn from science, the more we realize that we can't answer the most basic questions of life. That there is a spiritual realm, quantum physics and all of that stuff that I have no idea about. (laughs) But that there is a spiritual realm that has an impact on our life. And Jesus didn't come to build an institution. He came to bring the life of heaven and the vision of heaven to the earth. He came to restore God's original design, and we've been looking at that through the book of Ephesians. We've talked about God and who he is and who we are and all of that great stuff. You may have thought, because we ended at the end of chapter two that we were moving on to chapter three, but no, you'd be mistaken if you thought that. We're gonna spend one more week uh, in the last few verses of chapter three, chapter two, sorry, before we move on. It was so exciting. I've been staring at that chapter three in my Bible all week going, I can't wait until we were like in a new chapter. Um, And we will be soon when Jesus returns. But uh, we're gonna... Just read a few verses here, and then we're going to unpack this because Paul has got this um, 
what he's talking about has many layers to it and as many nuances to it. And I want to talk about a few of them this week. We covered some of them last week. You could listen to that. We covered um, a lot of the content from verse 11 to 19. And so I'm going to pick it up here. If you have a Bible, you can read with me. If not, it will be on the screen most likely. Um, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. So remember we talked about last week, Gentiles, Jews, that was, um, you know, anybody who wasn't a Jew ethnically was considered a Gentile. Um, And so that's what those words mean. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Uh, verse 20, together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Paul is talking about things and he has been talking about things on a personal level and now he shifts to like a large meta-narrative. And he's trying to teach us what the nature of our faith and the nature of the church should be. The problem is we're really messed up with what we think the church should be. And so Paul unpacks really three different metaphors here to express the nature of this thing. Like what did Jesus come and establish? What did he really come to do? And the first analogy or metaphor that Paul uses in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, you're citizens along with all of God's people. Paul references um, sort of this metaphor of citizenship as a way to express what has happened. And in Paul's day in the first century, uh, Paul lived in a Roman culture, and for him, citizenship wasn't just sort of a, a ticket that you got. It actually came with responsibility. There were rights and responsibilities of citizenship in Paul's time. In fact, in Paul's time, citizens of Rome didn't need to actually live in Rome. They could live in other countries and still carry the title of a citizen of Rome. And to be a citizen of Rome carried responsibilities. It carried the responsibility that where you were as a citizen you carried the Roman culture. Wherever you were in the known world at the time, wherever you were a citizen, you were like a one man or one family or one town outpost for Roman culture. And your job was to actually take the Roman culture that you were a citizen of and breathe it out into the areas around you, to express it out and to begin literally to transform the regions that you were living into, uh, living in into Roman cultured civilizations. This is how the Roman Empire was birthed and grew. It was an empire that grew as it sent its citizens out to appropriate the structure of Rome, the, the governmental structure, the culture of Rome. Paul is using this as an analogy for the church. And I find it interesting that he doesn't use 
a church structure, a temple, or a synagogue as an analogy, but he uses this idea of citizenship that carries rights and responsibilities. Jesus, in Matthew 16, 18, says something that I think actually Paul might be sort of referencing here under the surface. I just want to read that for you. Matthew 16, 18. So this is a conversation between Jesus and Peter. He says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not conquer it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. That's, if you're wondering why I pray like I do, it's that right there. <laughs> Jesus has given us the authority to forbid uh, the enemy in our life, in those spheres of authority that we have. Um, he's given us the authority to set the parameters for our life. If you have given your life to Jesus, you're no longer under the controlling influence of the enemy of God. You're the one who has the right as a citizen of heaven to determine what the boundaries of your life are. There is no sin that you actually, through Jesus, can't walk in victory over. A lot of times we believe the opposite. Well, that's what Jesus is saying there. I would just want to key in on a key word here. And he said, Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, I will build my church. That word church is the word ecclesia in the Greek. And there's two kind of ways that this word is used in the Bible, but really only one way it was used in Greek and Roman culture. Jesus is using a Greek word here for ecclesia. And the Greek word for ecclesia literally was a, a, a governmental agency, so a gathering of people, a movement of people that were sent into a region to establish the culture of Greece or Rome, the, the Greeks came up with this idea. They would take men that were over the age of 18, and when they were going into a new region, they would send this group of men there, and this group of men was called the Ecclesia. It had no religious connotation at all. It was a governing body. So this Ecclesia, E-K-K, not E-C-C, this Ecclesia had nothing to do with the church like we think it did. It was a governing body sent into a region to govern it under the rule and culture of its founding place. This is exactly the word that Jesus uses. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, on this rock, I'll build my synagogue. On this rock, I'll build my temple. Those existed in Jesus' day, but Jesus takes a secular word that's not associated at that time with the church. And he says, I'm going to build a movement of people that carry my governmental authority on the earth. In reality, what Jesus is doing is he's going back to Genesis 1, where when God created mankind, he said, rule and subdue the earth. I'm giving you a governmental authority on the earth. 
as my children, as my family on the earth. I'm giving you authority to rule and subdue the earth. Jesus is going back to Genesis 1. The ecclesia that Jesus is referencing is not a religious institution. And this is where we've gotten things so backwards because we read in our English Bible that word church and we go, oh yeah, I go there every Sunday. I'm not convinced that what we even do here every Sunday was even in Jesus' frame of mind. Of course, he's God, so he knows everything, past, present, future, all of that. So um, I'm not saying he didn't know, but what I'm saying is that our expression of this, there's a reason that Paul leads with this metaphor as he's talking about the nature of the church. Jesus grew up with three primary institutions in his life the synagogue, the temple, and the ecclesia. They were all around him all the time. And yet, when Jesus said, I'm going to establish a movement on this earth, and even the gates of hell won't prevail against it, he doesn't use a religious institution as the model. He uses a movement, a gathering of people with authority from a greater source as this model. It's interesting to note that the very place where Jesus said this to Peter, we talked a little bit about this, was an area called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi had a mountain named Mount Hermon, and most scholars believe, almost all of them really, except for Constantine's mom, and she wasn't a scholar, but everyone believes that Mount Hermon was where Jesus was transfigured. But literally this geographic region that Jesus is standing on is uh, there's a Decapolis of 10 cities there. And the, the lead city of this Decapolis is Pan. In the secular culture of Jesus' time, the city of Pan was known as the gates of hell. The city of Pan was known as a portal city to the unseen spiritual realm. The city of Pan was a destination place for people looking to engage in witchcraft, idolatry, all kinds of spirit stuff. They would go to Pan. So it was a dark, dark place. So Jesus, standing in this geographic area that is literally a gateway to the underworld, says, I am going to release something on the earth that has so much power and authority, that has my full governmental weight behind it, my full mandate from creation on, I'm gonna release something on the earth and the gates of hell, the strongest opposition of hell will not be able to withstand it. Gates are defensive, not offensive. The movement that Jesus started was never meant to be a hide in your corner and just wait it out movement. Jesus never meant for churches to be, uh, you know, a transfer station while you wait to get to heaven. You come here every week and see if the train is coming. Oh, it's not here. I'm going to go home. That's not what he designed the church to be. When Jesus uses the word church, he's not talking about an institution, but a movement of people that walk in his kingdom, governmental authority on the earth in such a way that the destructive works of the devil cannot withstand it, that we're pushing through stuff that is sent to oppose us, that we're unraveling the work of the devil on the earth. This is the 
ecclesia, the church that we're a citizen of, Paul says. Not an institution of religious practice and dogma, but a movement of people who carry authority from the emperor. I want to read to you just something. Though the Greeks invented this word ecclesia, it was the Romans who adopted it, developed and implemented it, and its function into the heart of their empire was that the ecclesia was gathered around the Roman emperor, the king. So the ecclesia, this movement of people, would hear and record his words. Then they were to see that his will and desires were being implemented across the kingdom. So this government body, this group of people would meet with the emperor, they would hear, this is my will for the kingdom and empire of Rome. They would take that, what they've heard from him, and bring it across the whole empire. This is the picture that Paul is giving us when he says, we're citizens of heaven. We are this body on the earth that God has called to, to carry his kingdom authority on the earth and in the world. The church is a people movement at its very core, not an institution. It's not static. That's why if the church isn't growing or hasn't changed, it's dead. If we're doing in five years exactly what we're doing today, then we've officially died. If there is no life, if, if we're not actually following in obedience the promptings of the Holy Spirit, then we're not living, we're dead. And this is the picture that Paul is giving as he talks about us being citizens. It's that call back to Genesis 1. Paul's second metaphor is that we are a family. He says this at the second half of um, verse 19, you're members of God's family. Again, Paul's not talking about an institution. Paul is drawing our attention to the reality that God has a family here on the earth that he wants to bring together. He wants a family on the earth, his family, to grow in maturity. I just want to just make a, a general observation. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, does it say the church is a business. Everywhere, it says it's a family, the house of God. Now, of course, we need to have good business practices to take care of the stewardship of your giving and finances and all of that stuff. But at the heart of it, the church isn't a business. Jesus didn't die to gain employees. He died to gain sons and daughters to himself. The church was never meant to operate as a business entity. It was never just to operate in that structure and in that environment. The church was always meant to be a living, breathing movement of people, a gathering place 
today, this morning, every Sunday, what we do through the week. This is a gathering place to encourage you and admonish you, to challenge you, to call you out, to equip you, and to send you back out into the world. This is not the thing. This isn't a business. Jesus didn't die for a business. He died for a movement of sons and daughters on the earth. And God's plan has always been, always been that his family would carry his heart throughout the whole earth. The problem is, is if we view the church wrong, if we view it with a distorted lens, we're going to interact with it improperly. This may come as a complete shock to a lot of you, but I enjoy eating. And I enjoy eating out. And before we had kids, that was like the thing that Rochelle and I did a lot is we'd just go and eat out and we'd go to nice restaurants and I just love it. I love eating out. And when I go to a restaurant, I have a certain expectation, especially if it's more expensive. I have an, I have an expectation as a customer in that restaurant of the experience that I'm going to have. I have an expectation of the level of preparation for the food and the service that I'm going to experience. There's an expectation that comes with that as a customer. And a lot of times, we think the church is a business that we're a customer of, and so we come into the church with a whole bunch of expectations of how we're going to be served and how our needs are going to be met and how we're going to be taught and we're going to grow and we're going to do this stuff. No one ever goes to a restaurant and after they're done the meal just says, hey, I'm going to pop into the kitchen with you and clean my dishes. I just want to do that. That's, that's the reason we go to a restaurant. So we don't have to do that. And yet when we come to the church, we come in and we say, hey, where's my hot food? It's been 10 minutes. It's not on the plate. And oh, this steak is slightly overcooked. I'm not happy with it. Send it back. I do that all the time. Send it back. Only after I've had two or three bites. So then, anyway. <laughs> um, send it back. I'm not satisfied with the service that I'm getting. How many of you have ever come home after work and had that same approach to your spouse? And how did that work for you? When you come home and you just kind of stroll in and you put your work bag down and you plop onto the couch, honey, where's my dinner? Ah, it's not hot enough. What have you been doing all day? <laughs> Where's dessert? Make sure you clean the kitchen after you're done. I've, I've got stuff to do upstairs. We would never come home if we're smart <laughs> and do that. When we were first married, I pretty much actually did do that. When we were first married, I grew up in a home, in a family where uh, my mom loves things clean to a high degree. And I, I benefited from that growing up my whole life. I had to do very little around the house and everything was always clean all the time. And dinner was always made and I, I never had to think about anything like that very much. And when we got married, I carried this same expectation in. 
And I realized something way too late, like after years of marriage. I realized that I had this expectation from how I was raised, and I wanted that expectation to continue, but I didn't want to do anything about it. Like, I didn't want to be the one to now actually have to clean and cook and do all of that stuff. I just expected someone else to do it for me because that's what had been modeled to me. And for a long time, in our, especially our Western church, we've modeled this dysfunctional view of church where we've allowed you to come in as a customer. As a customer who says, what do I get? Oh, I didn't like that music this morning. Oh, you know, that preaching was horrible or whatever it is. Why does he always yell? I can't help it. I just have a loud voice. I have a big voice box. <laughs> but we come in like customers, and Paul is saying, no, no, no. No, no, no. The church is a movement, and it's a family. If we view the church improperly, we're going to approach it improperly. And there's been so much division and hurt in the church, so much destruction and fracturing because we've viewed it improperly. The church is a family. I want to read to you just literally a definition of family. I think we have it, if we can throw it up there. All through Scripture, the church of Jesus Christ could be described as God's household, of which both Jew, Jewish and Gentile believers were family members. The result, okay, I want you to get this. The result is that one's responsibility to his spiritual family, to this group of people, is similar to his responsibility to his physical family. In our families, if we have functional, healthy families, we all carry different components of responsibility. In the house of God, the family of God is the same way. You're not customers when you come in. You come in and say, what do I bring? What do I offer? What has God gifted me with? What has he called me to? How do I serve? How do I lean in and be a part of what God is doing? I'm part of the family. I'm not going to the keg right now. I'm going to my aunt's house or my uncle's house. And we all have those people in our family that are a little bit strange. Usually it's an aunt or uncle, weird cousin maybe. I want to just make a note to you, too, that in this family that Paul is talking about, I don't know if you realize this, God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. There's no second, third, and fourth generation that God ever intended. What does that mean? That God's design for your life and for my life is that we have a direct relationship with him ourselves. Not that we come because that's just what we've done for generations. Not that our faith is our fathers or our aunts or our uncles or somebody else's in our house, but that God has sons and daughters, not grandchildren. He wants a relationship with you directly. But so often our churches are filled with step-grandkids and third and fourth generation down, you may not even know why you're here today. You may not even understand that God wants a deep, passionate relationship with you personally. 
There are no grandchildren in the family of God. In families, we look for growth in areas of maturity. You know, if uh, our kids, Eli and Simon, are 10 and 7, and if all of a sudden they just stopped growing in their mental capacity or in their understanding of the world or themselves or, you know, us, if they all of a sudden just stopped, something would be wrong. If they stopped growing, it would be a red flag that something is abnormal here. And the family of God is the same way. If you haven't been growing, that's abnormal. And if you haven't been growing, I want you to ask, is my relationship directly with God? Or do I have some weird, dysfunctional, third, fourth, fifth generation down relationship, but I don't even know who I am or who God is anymore? It should be natural that we grow spiritually. And if growth is not happening, if you've been going to church for three, five, 10, 20 years, and you haven't grown in your relationship with God, can I just say this in love and in grace that that's not God's intention for you. It's not his heart. We would never allow our children to experience that kind of abnormality and just sit on the sideline and just say, hey, you just deal with it. Hey, Eli, you're 10. I'm sure you'll be fine. You just deal with it. No, we would invest ourselves into figuring out what would trigger growth and renew growth. And that's the role of the church. That's my job. My job is not to serve you like a waiter at the keg. My job is to challenge you and exhort you to grow in your own personal walk with Jesus. As I follow him, I'm challenging you to follow me. As I do, I'm challenging you to do. As I practice, as I give, as I do all of that, I'm challenging you to do it. Isn't it true that often in the family, the kids, they just wanna act like their parents, like their mom or their dad. When our dad is generous, we become generous. And when our dad is gracious and kind, we become gracious and kind. And when our parents model healthy things for us, we internalize those and carry those ourselves. And this is the design of the church. And this is what Paul is talking about. But it requires a personal responsibility to maturity. Ephesians, not Ephesians, Hebrews 6, Paul lays out, he has this argument. He's like, by now, you guys should be eating steak, but you're still on the bottle because you're not investing yourself into your own growth. I have a newsflash for you. It's not the church's job to grow your spiritual life. It's yours. And that doesn't abdicate me from responsibility I have a tremendous amount of responsibility spiritually to lead you to the places that I feel God is leading us to. But it's not the church's job to grow you spiritually. That's your job. Look it up in Hebrews 6. Paul lays out several things there. 
that are identifiers. And he's saying, look, you don't even know these basic things because you haven't invested yourself as a part of the family. You haven't leaned in to steward that. Be something strange in our families if we just stop growing. And yet, somehow we believe it's just normal in the life of the church. I think that we don't have the impact that we want to have because we still have this mentality that it's a a service to be rendered to you or to me instead of a family to get in and involved in. You know, growing up, we in my family didn't play a lot of games per se, partly maybe it was my temper. (laughs) I don't know, I had a few episodes of turning the tables over, not in the good way that Jesus did, but in the bad way with Monopoly. It just gets the worst. Monopoly, I just can't handle what happens in Monopoly or Risk or those games. And so I just stopped playing. Rochelle's family, they are a game family. They love games. And they love to stay up late and play games. And for the first few years of our marriage, I would go to bed whenever at 10 o'clock they'd all start their game playing at 10 or 11 or 12 even. And I'd be like, I'm out, guys. I'm going to bed. And I realized something over the years that I was missing out. That I was missing out on what happened in relationship and family by not being a part of that. It was my right to just kind of go to bed But in the last few years, you can ask Rochelle or her parents, they've been amazed. I'm the one suggesting we play games, not because I love the games, but because I'm leaning into relationship. I'm making myself an active part of their family. And it's amazing what happens around those tables late at night. Part of it, I'll be honest, is that they let me eat whatever junk food I want. So literally, you know, the big excitement for games for me is going down to their pantry and seeing what kind of chips and chocolate they have. But they let me eat it all. So games are great in the freezing household. (laughs) But it's because I've decided to lean in and invest that I'm reaping the benefit of deeper relationships with her family. There's just something that happens by being present and involved. And I want to call you to get involved. You all carry gifts that this body needs to see what God's vision is for this church and our community fulfilled. And we're past the point where we can afford to have people that are just along for the ride, who are coming in expecting a service, to be performed for them and walking out. We're now into the zone as a church where we need all of you to lean in and be a part of the family. Is it dysfunctional? Yeah, sometimes it is. Is it hard? Yes, sometimes it is. But God never designed this to be an institution or a business. He's made it a family. And his invitation to you and I is to lean in, to bring everything that we have. If you want to know what your gifts are, we've got that stuff. You can find it on our website. You can do a quick gifts test. And it's not the be in the end all, but it's just the start. We're heading into Easter where we're going to be 
handing tens of thousands of bags out for Project Share in our neighborhoods, and we need you to lean in with us. Do you know how many years a few people have literally spent the whole day in the pouring rain or whatever the weather is, walking the streets of the city because they are not wanting to be left on the side. But we need the whole family together, leaning in, using their gifts. You need to be present if you want to experience the full benefit and joy of what God has intended for you in your life. Yeah, are the relationships hard sometimes? For sure they are. We've got so much stuff that God has put on our heart to do in our city and in our region. And it will take actually the whole family doing it together. There's stuff, again, you can go on our website and see detailed lists of the different teams you can be on. Our family house is full. It's full every week like this. And I know you hate sitting right beside the people, especially if you don't know them, because I don't like it either when our shoulders are touching and it's hot and sweaty and all of that stuff. Our house is full. What are we going to do? We've been praying about it and we're beginning a strategic plan to figure it out, but we need all of you on board so that the family can grow, that the family can experience the renewal and life and healing and transformation that Jesus is inviting us to walk into. God never designed the family to be stagnant and static, but to continue to grow. And if we're going to continue to grow, then we need you as a part of the family to lean in with us. God's heart for us is not just that we serve ourselves every week as a country club, but that we actually carry as citizens the authority of heaven on the earth, the mandate of heaven on the earth. It's going to require you and I to shift our perspective from needing to be externally motivated by the preaching and worship and other things to developing an internal desire for relationship with God, an internal motivation that fuels you to go, God, what have you made me for? How can I lean in and serve and become a part of this body? How can I do what you've put me on this earth to do? It's going to require that internal motivation from you. Lastly, Paul says that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that in fact we're like the, the stones, the building stones that are being put together on this temple. And the beauty of that image is that the temple isn't done. God is still building this thing. And Paul says in some of his other writing that that we're in fact the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he lives in us. We don't need to go to a place anymore, but that the presence of God resides in us. And that when we carry that presence of God on the earth together, God builds something out of our lives together that we couldn't do on our own. There is another pastor in Hawaii, I believe, who used this analogy, and I, I want to end with this. 
There's two different ideas for the way church, quote-unquote, should be. And the one is dysfunctional and not related to the church that Jesus said that he was building. And the one is more closely related. And the difference is between being a cruise ship and a warship. What do we go on a cruise ship for? (laughs) We go on a cruise ship to be pampered, to lay around, to eat at the buffets, I do, um, and to just soak in the sun, to relax and rejuvenate and renew. We go on a cruise ship to be served. But you try doing that if you're in the military on a warship, and very quickly you'll realize that everybody on that warship has a specific assignment. They've been trained. They've been equipped. They know exactly what they're doing when they need to do it. There's a rhythm and a system to that ship for it to be effective. And God has not called the church to be a cruise ship, to just gather people on. Hey, come along for the ride. We're just waiting it out until the sweet by and by. Come on here. And you know what? Um, We've got six different international buffets, all the food that you could like and and desire. Just come on in and, and we'll serve you and and you'll have all of your needs met. Instead, the invitation of Jesus, as he's standing with Peter literally at the gates of hell talking about warfare, Jesus is saying, you're in a battle, and you're in a fight, and you're standing on a battleship, and you don't know what the heck you're doing. You don't know where to go. You don't know what your assignment is, and you're going to get destroyed. His invitation to you and I is to learn, where do you want me on this battleship, God? Train me and teach me to operate the things that I need to so that we can win the war on sin and death. So that we can push back the gates of hell that our families are not being destroyed. That our children aren't suffering and going to hell in a handbasket, literally. That culture isn't ripping our teenagers and university students apart. That sickness and disease and all of this stuff is not just tolerated as an accepted byproduct of this earth. But Jesus is saying, get on the ship, know your part, serve and commit. And I will allow you to advance against the gates of hell. Our city needs it. Your families need it. My family needs it. Our region needs it. They don't need a cruise ship floating through the harbor with Mickey Mouse ears on it. They need a a family of people who are called and committed to the assignment that God has given them on this earth. This is what Paul is talking about. He's using these three different metaphors, building construction, family and citizenship, to talk about what the church really should be. I'll bring you back to the verse that seems to be my clarion call verse of this season of my life, 1 John 3, 8. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus didn't come to ride on a cruise ship and drink Mai Tais until the end. He came with a specific mission. 
to destroy the work and influence of the devil. If you want to know what that is, you can go back and listen to the previous podcast from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Jesus is on a mission. The question is, are you? Look, I don't want to be a casualty on the deck of some stupid spiritual cruise ship because I missed my opportunity to get involved, to lean in as a part of the family and be a part of this movement to take back the earth for the kingdom of God. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church at and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.